Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Ames. Happy November. Today we're going to look at homelessness. Stay tuned to learn more. With the COVID pandemic the past few years, I think homelessness has definitely become an issue and topic that's in the news more recently than it has ever been in the last few decades. Particularly with the cost of food, goods, gas, everything increasing, this has led to a lot of foreclosed homes and people just unable to pay for a roof above their head. Homelessness was once, I think, an almost invisible problem, uh, even though it touches millions and millions of Americans each year. I would say for decades, you know, a lot of politicians and, and people who vote for them have been promoting policies that ineffectively criminalize rather than reduce the homelessness crisis. And a lot of times it's sort of under this banner of shelter, you know, short term solutions that have become kind of the go to method in a long term fight against the uh, really providing a, a viable solution for these people. And there's, there's no denying the fact that homelessness is growing at an unprecedented rate. But it's also important to sort of look at how this came to be and what's the history of homelessness. And, you know, depending on the sources, some people say it started between the beginning of the Revolutionary War and the end of the Civil War. But definitely something that, ha- that started hundreds of years ago. During these times, many of the conflicts, uh, including the Revolutionary War, or even before that, the Seven Years' War, it really drove a lot of colonial residents out of their settlements and into the forests and fringes of society. And they were forced to remain sort of idle there, uh, begging for scraps, um, just doing whatever they could to survive. And a lot of these trends, unfortunately, still continue today. Obviously, war does cause a a lot of people to to lose their homes. According to the website Invisible People that looks at a lot of social issues related to homelessness, as far back as the mid 18th century, we actually witnessed several terms that would be used to classify homeless people. And one was sturdy beggar. And that's an English phrase that that actually started even before the mid 18th century uh, that really was focused on labeling these vagabonds and kind of outcasts uh, by the British Empire. So the British Empire came up with this term and they actually had laws uh, on their books as far back as the early 1600s that basically had sort of this anti-homeless legislation. And in looking at some of these, it essentially criminalized homelessness. So if someone was found to be living on the streets or without a home, they would be put in prison. And at some point during the 1700s, the same idea came across the pond to the U.S. And the idea of charitable punishment uh, basically was not just sending them to prison, but also making them be slaves or indentured servants or any type of thing that, you know, in the eyes of the government or in the eyes of the officials, okay, we're helping them by, by taking them off the street. But in reality, it's really not treating them fairly and it's not treating them like, like human. So as, as mentioned before, a lot of these sturdy beggars were basically popping up all across the countryside um, due to colonization, to wars, etc. And it probably is no surprise that uh, it also affected people of color. So the end of the Civil War only seemed to really erect new pathways into slavery. So a lot of these newly freed African-Americans 
had to fight against the black codes, right? Basically, these laws that place restrictions on pretty much everything, including their right to own property. So a lot of them are sort of left in this limbo where the only homes that they ever knew were living on the plantations. Now they're not really allowed to own their own property. So what's what's really going to happen? They were free, but they didn't have a lot of freedom to really do anything. And a lot of these people, a lot of these slaves are also veterans as well. These were black men who had fought for the Union in the Civil War, and they fought to have rights, but now the war's over, and they were robbed of a lot of the rights that they fought for. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about race and homelessness later on in the episode, but just to sort of introduce the topic here. So continuing on later into history, by 1870, homelessness was officially recognized as a national issue, and it had a lot of people weighing in on a lot of different ideas, but basically just looking at the facts. So according to Bloomberg City Lab, about 75,000 unhoused individuals were uh, what we would consider to be homeless, uh, were uh, being counted at that time. And that was, you know, considered a lot, considering, of course, too, a lot of people, immigrants were moving to the U.S. Uh, There wasn't always room for people to live. They didn't always have money. Uh, But this gets worse. So that was 1870. A hundred years later, um, you're looking at even more of an issue with a lot of units that were built during that time were actually torn down. So even in the 1880s, 1890s, when there wasn't a lot of money and maybe there weren't specific uh, laws on the books about helping homelessness, a lot of cities were actually building uh, housing units for those newly arrived immigrants. But just a hundred years later in the 1970s, a lot of these were taken down, a lot of sort of you know, units that were set aside for low-income people did not really exist anymore. And come the 1980s, the U.S. had breached its, you know, kind of point of inequality and homelessness was becoming a huge issue. Uh, There's a lot happening, obviously, in the 1980s, the AIDS epidemic, uh, the privatized system of mass incarceration, a divide, a wealth gap divide, a lot of crisis with uh, the housing crisis was a huge issue. And it's a lot happened. So since we are, of course, now on the topic of the 1980s, I can't help but talk about Ronald Reagan and how he contributed to the homelessness crisis. It's, of course, no secret that I've never been a fan of Reagan, that I do consider him to be one of the worst presidents in the U.S. But to my defense, when I do talk about Reagan and I do come for him, I always have my receipts. So let me just explain why I'm saying this. Reagan's fans have given him a lot of credit for restoring the nation's prosperity. But whatever economic growth occurred during the Reagan years of the 1980s only benefited those already well off. The income gap between the rich and everyone else in America widened. The wages for the average worker declined and the nation's homeownership rate fell. During Reagan's two terms in the White House, which you know were a time where a lot of wealthy people, as I said, did really well, but on the other hand, the, a lot of the people in poverty continued to be in poverty. The, the 1980s really saw this, this pervasive racial discrimination by banks, by real estate landlords, and a lot of it was unmonitored by the Reagan administration. Community groups uncovered a lot of just blatant redlining by banks using Federal Home Mortgage Disclosure Act information. Uh, According to Shelter Force, which is an organization that works on ending homelessness, Reagan's Housing and Urban Defense 
actually failed to prosecute, prosecute or even sanction banks that violated the Community Reinvestment Act, which prohibits racial discrimination in lending. So during that time, for example, about 40,000 applications from banks requesting permission to expand their operations and the banks, Reagan's bank regulators denied only eight of them on grounds of violating those CRA regulations. So this essentially meant that millions of, of people of color were denied loans or mortgages due to just blatant and unchecked racism. By the end of Reagan's term in office, federal assistance to local governments was cut 60%. So Reagan eliminated general revenue sharing to cities. He slashed funding for public service jobs and job training. He almost dismantled federally funded legal services for the poor. He cut the anti-poverty community development block grant program, and he reduced funding for public transportation. Really, if you look at it, the only urban program that survived the cuts was the federal aid for highways, which honestly is going to just mostly benefit suburbs and not even cities. So obviously these setbacks had a disastrous effect on cities with high levels of poverty and limited property tax bases, many of which depended on federal aid. In 1980, federal dollars accounted for 22% of big city budgets. By the end of Reagan's second term in the late 80s, federal aid was only 6%. So as you can imagine, the consequences were devastating to urban schools and libraries, hospitals, clinics, fire departments, everything. Many of them had to actually shut down. And on the other side of things, you know, every people are seeing Reagan on TV and they're seeing him give speeches and they he's sort of called the great communicator, right? But sometimes he used a lot of this this rhetoric and his skills to stigmatize the poor. Uh, there's a couple of speeches where if you if you look on YouTube or or really anywhere on the internet, he he sort of dutifully promising to roll back welfare and there's a story that he told about a so-called welfare queen in Chicago who drove a Cadillac and had ripped off $150,000 from the government, had 80 aliases, 30 different addresses, a dozen social security cards, dead husbands, fictional dead husbands. But when journalists really started digging for this and searching for this welfare cheat in hopes of, well, interviewing her, they discovered that she actually didn't really exist. So a lot of this so-called trying to to save America and, and save money for hardworking Americans really just ended up hurting a lot of people. The most dramatic cut in domestic spending during the Reagan years was for low-income housing subsidies. Reagan appointed a housing task force dominated by politically connected developers, uh, landlords, bakers, etc. And in 1982, the task force released a report that called for free and deregulated markets as an alternative to government assistance, advice that Reagan followed. So in his first year in office, he halved the budget for public housing in Section 8 to about $17.5 billion. In the next few years, he sought to eliminate federal housing assistance support altogether. So according to the same organization, Shelter Force, in the 1980s, the the proportion of the eligible poor who received housing, federal housing subsidies, declined. In 1970, there were about 300,000 more low-cost rental units than low-income renter households. 
But by 18, by 1985, the number of low-cost units had fallen and the number of low-income renter households had grown. So it, it ended up being a situation where there were just not enough houses and that just not enough resources. And a lot of it is Section 8. So for those of you who don't know, Section 8 is a big part of uh, helping low-income families who cannot qualify or who are not able to pay for uh, housing, it helps them to be able to have uh, to be able to to have a roof over their head, and it gives them a a chance to actually live somewhere instead of living in their car or living in a shelter. So a lot of these really really hit uh, low-income people. Another of Reagan's enduring legacies is the steep increase in the number of homeless people, which by the late 1980s had increased. So it had gone to about 600,000 on any given night to about 1.2 million. And a lot of these people were Vietnam vets. They were uh, children. They were people who were laid off. A lot, a lot of people uh, were affected by that. in 1984, uh, Reagan went on Good Morning America and he defended himself against these charges of callousness, right, towards the poor. And he basically said in a typical uh, victim-blaming statement, he said, quote, people who are sleeping on the grates, the homeless, are homeless, you might say, by choice, end quote. So a lot of these, again, these policies are really uh, policies that have continued to affect people. So a lot of it, uh, you know, obviously some important victories were won, particularly in the 1980s. Or I'm sorry, with the 1990s when Clinton entered office. There's expansion of the earned income tax credit. There's strong enforcement of the CRA, uh, more funding for low-income housing, legal services, job training, etc. A lot of these things uh, did pop up after Reagan. However, there is still such a wide and a gap uh, between the rich and poor, and a lot of it does. We do see this in terms of housing. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, there are a lot of racial ramifications with homelessness. African Americans make up 13% of the general population. 21% of people living in poverty in the U.S. are Black, according to the census data. But African Americans account for 40% of people experiencing homelessness and half of homeless families with children, according to the 2018 Annual Homeless Assessment Report, AHAR, produced by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. American Indians are also overrepresented in the homeless population. Latinos make up a share of the homeless population, about 22%, and that's slightly higher than their share of the general population at 18%. Based on their percentage of the total population, the number of homeless whites and Asians is disproportionately low. Increasingly, local governments are exploring ways to address the racial disparities. LA in February, for example, announced an initiative to tackle rising black homelessness after voters approved a local tax hike to build housing units. In Seattle, uh, in King County, they actually created a data system to track the homeless population and look at its racial composition. And in 2017, city officials awarded $3.2 million to five Native-led nonprofits for homelessness programs. But in order to really fix the problem, one could argue we need to figure out why this is happening and look at the causes. 
So what are the causes? Well, from slavery to segregation, obviously African-Americans have been systemically denied rights and socioeconomic opportunities. Other minority groups like indigenous and Latino people share similar histories. The homelessness obviously is a byproduct of the systemic inequality, and a lot of these lingering effects of racism continue to play a big part as to why people are homeless. Poverty, obviously, particularly deep poverty, is a strong, strong reason. Black and Latino groups are, again, overrepresented in poverty, and this causes a lot of them to not be able to afford housing or having to choose between housing and food. Uh, I would also say the segregation with rental housing and and just housing discrimination in general plays a big part of it. So redlining, uh, which is the the housing discrimination that's supported by the federal government decades ago is a root cause of the current wealth gap between white households and households of color. So redlining discourages economic investment such as mortgage and business loans in black and brown neighborhoods. And, you know, it's it's easy to say, well, that's something that happened decades ago and this is 2022, but the effects are still with us today. So African-Americans still live disproportionately in concentrated poverty or in neighbor, neighborhoods where they are regularly exposed to environmental toxins. They have limited access to quality care services. They don't have a, a nutritious food. The list goes on. So people that become homeless are likely to have lived in these types of neighborhoods. Also incarceration as well. So we know that the racial disparity in incarceration rates have continuously worsened and the rate for African-Americans have tripled between 1968 and 2016. It's more than six times the rate of white incarceration. So these obviously uh, racial issues are no accident. Uh, Black and brown people are at far greater risk of being targeted, profiled, arrested for minor offenses, especially in high poverty areas. So I think the implications of over-criminalization are are really far-reaching. Even if you do your time and you get out, a criminal history can keep people from successfully passing background checks, and that's a really big part of securing housing and employment. Uh, people that are, are leaving jail and prison, are they often face a lot of significant problems in, in just accessing safe, affordable housing, and that's, that's going to be a big, big challenge. Also, health insurance, uh, particularly for for us in America, that's always, I think, a challenge and that's always something that's risky. The lack of health insurance for people with chronic medical conditions or untreated serious mental illness can place them at risk of becoming homeless. For example, you know, people with mental health disabilities are vastly overrepresented in the population of people who experience homelessness. According to endhomelessness.org, of the more than 550,000 people in America who have experienced homelessness on a given night, one in five had behavioral health issues. And while the rate of serious mental illness may not vary by race, studies show African Americans have more difficulty accessing treatment, whether it's mental or physical health. And also just the the system's response, any effort to end homelessness in the U.S. must address the range of issues that have resulted from this racial inequality. And that includes assuring affordable, stable housing for all programs that help people, that help people with health 
issues as well. So there's a lot that needs to be done, which always leads to the big question of, well, what is being done? You know, what can we do? Uh, a few years ago, the Washington State House of Representatives passed a bill that overhauled the state's eviction laws, which tr- critics basically accuse of, of being, well, racist. Uh, so the, the idea of, of this was, you know, the fact that so some people had been evicted for owing a month of rent or less or even as low as 50 bucks. And evictions is one of the leading causes of homelessness a- across the country. So the, because somebody maybe can't afford or they're running a little bit late on the rent, that could cause them to be kicked out, which obviously causes them to, to be homeless. Last year, the Center for Social Innovation offered a to-do list for cities tackling race and homelessness. Among its recommendations, enact and enforce fair housing laws, regulate evictions, and introduce legislation to prevent mass evictions, reintroduce rent control in large urban markets, and limit the scope of background checks for ex-offenders, and also expand eligibility for housing vouchers. The outline was included in a 2018 report studying six communities, Atlanta, Columbus, Dallas, San Francisco, Syracuse, and Pierce County in Washington. And it found that two thirds of the people experiencing homelessness were people of color. There was also a study in LA by the housing, Homeless Housing Services Authorities that found that nearly 70% of the Black homeless population live outside. So among the report's recommendations is to establish a countywide initiative to push for racial equality in so- social services. And that would also mean recruiting and hiring more African-Americans who had actually been homeless in the past so they know what it's like and what people might might need. A lot of people are also asking, okay, well, what can we do as individuals to help? Well, there's an organization that's called The Right to Shower, and they made a few suggestions for everyday Americans to help out those who are homeless. Obviously, there's never a good time to lack shelter, but with the cold weather coming, uh, we're seeing a lot of people that are, are being hit really hard. And with inflation and all of that, it is obviously causing a lot of people to, to be homeless or, or near homeless. So a couple of suggestions they had is uh, one, donate clothing, especially socks. So shelters are always in need of new or gently used clothes, especially personal hygiene items and socks. Share on social media that you're making the donation and even volunteer to bring over any items that the other people might want to chip in. Number two is volunteer your time. So a lot of homeless shelters or service organizations will welcome your on-hand assistance. And I actually, that's something that I used to do with my family, particularly over Thanksgiving or before Christmas, is go down to a shelter and, and just volunteer, help out, talk to people, serve food. So that can be a really nice uh, way to help out. Number three is fundraise. So obviously nowadays there's GoFundMes and a lot of just easy ways to to raise money. So that's an option. Number four is researching your local candidates. So election day is right around the corner and local politicians are really important. Um, Just remember again, yeah, that politicians can really dictate your community or your city's policies or fundraising levels for homeless services and affordable health house. Uh, options and and healthcare. So take the time to to really learn about your candidates' proposals and the issues that are are really important, and and just make sure you get out and vote. 
And number five, lastly, the, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development funds networks of homeless serving agencies called Continuance of Care or COCs. And this is a, a big thing in a lot of, of cities. So COCs are basically um, volunteer teams that spread out across the city and they perform a headcount of homeless individuals and um, then work to, to, get, uh, to get funding for these, these people. So uh, maybe check that out and see if that's something that is going on in your city and, and look and see how you can, you can help. So these are some of the ways to, to get involved and to make a difference. Okay, so it's time to ask a black friend. So, okay, the topic uh, today is around, obviously, as I said, the elections are coming up and it's a very political time. So my general question was, does nominating and electing a person of color mean that we're moving towards closer towards a post-racial society? So recently I was talking with some people about Rishi Sunak, who is UK, the UK's prime minister. He's the first prime minister of color. And, you know, kind of talking about, okay, what does that look like for diversity? What does that mean? He, Sunak is a, a man of Indian descent. He's also a member of the Tory party, which is the UK's conservative party. And the Tories, not unlike Republicans here in the US, have often been criticized for being a party of, well, older white men. So now that they have a diverse PM, doesn't that mean something? Doesn't that say, okay, look, like we're starting to be a bit more open when it comes to what our leaders look like, what race or religion and all of that? Well, I'm not really sure that it does, to be honest. We seem a lot of times, I think, sort of happy with this idea of like trickle-down diversity, right? Like this belief that putting people of color at the top of an organization will just automatically benefit people of color lower down the scale. And that it's somehow going to change an organization's culture. It's going to increase employment for, for people, you know, from diverse backgrounds at every level. It's going to create better policies for multicultural society, which all of this sounds really great if it actually happens. And I think we've already seen the limits of the idea that people of color at the top always brings about positive change. Um, Suela Braverman, for example, who is the home secretary over there, um, she's a daughter of immigrants, uh, immigrants from Kenya and Mauritius. And she recently talked about, you know, her kind of dream of seeing people, uh, seeing a plane packed with people of refugees flying off to Rwanda, because that's uh, where the UK basically said that uh, they would they would like to send um, refugees. Uh, so, you know, we have people like that. We have also Sunak himself um, boasting that he had changed a funding formula that gave more public money to deprived urban urban areas. So, you know, maybe people say, hey, like we just picked the wrong people of color. Like these are, you know, wealthy people of color. So, of course, they're kind of out of touch and they're not going to have the best, uh, you know, best interests of of poor people or, or people from urban areas and all of that. But I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Well, I mean, it's at least it's not the whole problem. I think the problem is the concept itself, right? The idea that simply 
by increasing diversity at the top of an organization, whether you're a prime minister or CEO, that this is going to lead to diversity throughout. It's not really, we haven't really seen that and it's not really supported by any studies or research. Um, Harvard researchers, for example, found that when men promoted diversity, they received slightly higher performance ratings. They were perceived as being good guys, right? And creating a better workplace. But when female executives promoted diversity, they were seen as being biased and their own performance was negatively perceived as well. Another study sort of showed the same, but even worse, it suggested that people from ethnic minorities who previously demonstrated a tendency to advocate for diversity are less likely to be promoted or get a new job. The consequences are basically that, well, diverse workers have to choose between their own personal ambition or helping people of their own background. So it's not really a win-win situation. And and obviously, I'm not just picking on the UK, by the way. We all know about the Republican Party's attempt to show how diverse they are by nominating Mr. Herschel Walker to be the next senator of Georgia. They felt the need to pick a black person since their current senator, Raphael Warnock, is a black man. And I know about you, but I'm not really ready to pat the Republicans on the back and congratulate them for their diversity. For a lot of Republicans, any warm body that can be used as a pawn is pretty much sufficient. And the fact that Herschel Walker happens to be black is kind of this really exciting irony that's just too delicious to resist for some voters who have, you know, had to choose essentially to rally behind probably one of the most unqualified political candidates in recent history. So, yeah, of course, to many voters, particularly Republican voters, Walker is this, you know, nice, warm body. He's just ready to be used and abused by the Republican Party. And his difficulty in articulating a comprehensive sentence or, you know, his documented history of violence or his obvious lack of understanding, his moral hypocrisy regarding abortion, all that stuff just doesn't really matter. And I'm not saying, by the way, that all Blacks should be Democrats because obviously it's good to have options. But I'm just saying, come on, we can all agree that we can do better than Herschel Walker. And and certainly, you know, again, black leaders are entitled to have different thoughts, ideas, or political ideologies. Some people, myself included, disagree with conservative leaders like Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who is black, but they would not describe him as being incompetent. I mean, Black political leaders can be conservative without being a straight-up walking stereotype. And this is really hard for me to see because in a community that's really fought against stereotypes of, of violence and criminality and inferiority and, and and sexual promiscuity, Herschel Walker is just a big embarrassment to the African-American community. I mean, his history of terrorizing women through violent threats, stalking, also he fails to acknowledge a couple of kids that he fathered. It's it's all just too much. I mean, his own son even suggested that he was violent and that he cheated on a lot of woman, women. That it, It's just a lot. You know, kind of this idea of of being judged by the worst example in your community, I think is, is a burden with which most Americans are probably not familiar with, but as a political leader, Walker, unfortunately, would be a representative of the black community by by default. 
And whether he intends to represent the community or not, and whether the black community wants it or not, it's sort of how it's going to be. And so if he's elevated to political office, he would become this really useful, I think, cautionary tale for racists to basically illustrate how politicians of color are just a bad idea. And of course, recruiting a minority candidate to run against another with the implicit goal of of basically just getting votes and just saying like, hey, look, you know, we, we got a black too. We have black friends. It's just, it's not going to lead anywhere good. You know, it's just not. And Walker's just, he's problematic because he's just this perfect walking stereotype of all the negative things that the black community has fought against for decades. And it's just, again, it's not even the fact that he's Republican. That's fine. Black people can be Republican. It's just the fact that he just doesn't have any redeeming qualities or values. And I say all this to say sometimes nominating a person of color just to show that you are a diverse party often, more often than not, does more harm than good, especially if the candidate just isn't qualified. Okay, that's all for today. To end this episode, I would like to say a quote from uh, a man, a writer, uh, Asa Don Brown, that sort of speaks, I guess, against what Reagan said. Um, so he said, Don Brown said, quote, homelessness is not a choice, but rather a journey that many find themselves in, end quote. And I think that's fair because, again, we can't just keep blaming victims and just saying, well, people are poor, people are in bad situations because they allowed themselves to get into that. So I think it's important for all of us to have a little compassion, especially as the holiday season is is coming up soon. So Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. And remember, don't forget to vote.